It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. we got a great show, and you can bank on it. That is correct. And joining us is, of course, the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. You know, the new Capitol Citizen features the satiric skills of Steve Scrovan. He wrote a piece on Congress as a gated community. It's hilarious. The Capitol Citizen is just out with this latest edition, 40 pages packed with material you won't see not only in the mainstream media, but in the independent media. You can get a copy, first-class mail, by going to capitalcitizen.com. Spread the word. People are very excited who read this wonderful new newspaper focused on Capitol Hill in order to make more of us Capitol Hill citizen activists. And if you want a little comic relief, turn to page 12. That's where my piece is, and that's also enhanced by the graphic genius of our very own Jimmy Lee Wirt. And on today's show, we welcome Casey Fannin, who is the CEO of National Cooperative Bank. NCB, as it's known, was one of the many victories of the consumer rights movement. Before NCB, many cooperatives weren't eligible to use the existing cooperative finance system. So a coalition of cooperative leaders, civil rights leaders, and consumer advocates, including, of course, our very own Ralph Nader, set out to provide a dependable source of financing. National Cooperative Bank was chartered by Congress in 1978 to serve the financial needs of cooperatively owned organizations that operated for the benefit of their members, not outside investors. We'll speak to Mr. Fannin about National Cooperative Bank's mission, their history, their plans for the future, and their cooperative successes over the last 45 years. Then Ralph has a couple of things to get off his chest, and then he's going to also respond to some listener feedback. And as always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our steadfast corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber, but first, let's talk to Casey Fannin about cooperative banking. David. Casey Fannin is president and CEO of National Cooperative Bank, a leading financial services company dedicated to providing banking products to cooperatives and socially responsible organizations nationwide. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Casey Fannin. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on. Yeah, welcome indeed. Well, for our listeners, they might be interested to know that one in every three Americans are a member of a co-op. Maybe you don't know that, but it's case. Co-op is as American as apple pie, not just farmer co-ops, consumer co-ops, housing co-ops, all kinds of different co-ops, even moving into the internet age in terms of potential co-ops surrounding the concept of the commons. And the biggest membership probably is in credit unions. Over 70 million Americans belong to credit unions all over the country. It doesn't matter whether it's blue state, red state. Co-ops are everywhere, especially in farm country. So that's one. And just to give the framework, Casey, I want to read from your description of the National Cooperative Bank, which we worked assiduously with the Cooperative League of the USA and others to get through Congress in 1978, and we attended a signing ceremony in the White House in August of 1978. I remember how hot a day that was, <laughs> but it was a very celebratory day. Anyway, the National Consumer Cooperative Bank is now called the National Cooperative Bank, 
that was a name change that was controversial, which we'll get into. And I'm quoting from your materials. Provides comprehensive banking products and services to cooperatives and other member-owned organizations throughout the country. What makes NCB unique is that the bank was created to address the financial needs of underserved market niche people who join together cooperatively to meet personal, social, or business needs, especially in low-income communities, end quote. So the traditional definition of a cooperative is an a economic organization that provides goods and services to its customers and is owned by its customers, like a food co-op in a locality, say in Berkeley or St. Paul's, Minnesota, would be owned by the consumers who go there every day and buy, and then they get some dividends. It is not a profit-making organization. It's cooperative. If they have money left over, it's, it either goes into reinvestment to maintain the premises, etc., or is sent out in dividends to the consumer owners. Now, whether fortunately or unfortunately, Casey, the definition of a co-op that is able to get loans from the co-op bank has been expanded in considerably controversial directions, and we'll get to it. But I want you just to tell our listeners, where is the co-op bank, how many employees does it have, and what are its assets, and how much did it loan out last year? Just to give people a sense of quantitative descriptions. Yeah. So NCB is located in Washington, D.C. That's where we're headquartered. We have a few different primary offices, one being in the D.C. area, which is where we have about 150 people or so. We have another operation center in Ohio, Hillsborough, Ohio, which is with roughly an equal amount of people. And we have a New York office, which is where I sit today, which covers uh, one of our larger markets, which is housing cooperatives in New York City. Collectively, we have roughly 340 wonderful employees. In terms of asset size, we're about $3.4 billion. And last year, we originated roughly $1.6 billion in loan products. And that's a pretty high number for a $3.4 billion bank. And I think that's a testament to really our expertise in the capital market space, bringing the power of the capital markets and the lower cost financing to our co-ops and our co-op members through NCB. So, you know, that's, uh, and we have about 3,600 cooperative members of the bank. As you mentioned, NCB is a cooperative itself. So just like you described what a cooperative is, NCB fits that description. When a co-op gets a loan from the bank, it becomes an owner of the bank. They can, yes. They, members can, uh, or customers can purchase, if they are a cooperative, can purchase stock in NCB, and many do. And we've been paying dividends. We just paid a, uh, our largest dividend ever in 2022, and we just paid out last month our dividend for 2023. So uh, I think it's been a good investment for the cooperative members. Well, as you know, because you've been with the bank since 1996, most of your banking career it had a turbulent beginning. After it was passed by Congress and signed by President Carter in 1978, Carter lost the election to Reagan, and one of the first moves Reagan made was he wanted to abolish the bank. He thought it was not capitalistic enough, and there were back-and-forth negotiations with the Reagan administration and the bank and its supporters, which included organized labor as well as the cooperatives around the country, and a compromise was reached. 
so that the bank was privatized. And not only privatized, but it changed its name to just National Cooperative Bank. And in the process of privatizing, the issue of taxpayer subsidies arose. Because obviously, it, to get underway, it had to have a taxpayer subsidy. It had to be capitalized. That's right. So can you just clarify that history? Are you still receiving any taxpayer subsidies like Wall Street does all the time at a much higher <laughs> order of magnitude? <laughs> no, hardly, hardly. Back in 1981, as you mentioned, when National Consumer Cooperative Bank converted from a government-sponsored entity, so basically on the budget of the government, to a privately owned cooperative, as you mentioned, we needed that initial capital to be successful as a new bank. And so at the time, the capital that had been delivered to NCB while it was on the, the government's watch converted to sub debt. So I think at the peak period, I'm going to guess we probably had 200 million or so of sub debt that we owed to the United States Treasury Department. And for many years, you know, we carried that debt and, you know, serviced that debt and would, you know, slowly chip away at that debt. And it's been, you know, several years, I'm guessing, kind of going from memory here, I'd say probably 2005-ish, we paid off all of the debt that we owed to the United States Treasury Department. So I don't know if I'd say subsidy, Ralph, I would say that that initial capital that was provided to NCB by the government was an investment. And so I think that Looking back at the history of that investment, I think it turned out quite well for the U.S. taxpayer. I think you're quite right. I mean, not only turned out quite well, but a contrast to government-guaranteed big capitalism today, where big corporations get in trouble because mismanagement, corruption, bad marketing decisions go to Washington for bailouts. Only small businesses have to face the bankruptcy. So the co-op movement should never feel defensive about this, their reliance on government is very minimal. No, absolutely. I mean, we you... still have to tie back to the original Bank Act, but we have no obligations to the government, financial obligations to the government uh, anymore. Well, one of the problems with co-ops is the lack of membership engagement. And some co-ops have failed because the members who own the co-op don't show up for the meetings, they don't get engaged, and the co-op institution falters. One reason why a small percentage of your loans is devoted to traditional consumer co-ops, like food co-ops, which are owned by what is called in the statute ultimate consumers, is the lack of requests for loans from around the country. In other words, you have more loans available over the years to these food co-ops than you were requested to extend. What are you doing about that, especially in low-income areas where there are food deserts and a lot of commercial exploitation of the poor? Are you making speeches, firing people up about the cooperative tradition of self-reliance and durability and responsiveness? Or do you have any bank policies that are trying to rev up more loan requests? Yeah, no, we're always, as you can imagine, we're always looking for cooperative lending opportunities and across the country. A second or two on participation, the University of Wisconsin put together a really nice research piece last year on the engagement of cooperative members. And, and you're right, there are certain categories of cooperatives that don't have very high levels of participation. And consumer cooperatives tend to have 
higher participation at times of crisis or major decisions. But outside of that, you know, it, it can vary. I think purchasing co-ops have the highest percent of participation. But, you know, we have we have made loans in all 50 states. Aside from the three main offices that I described earlier, we have employees across the country working from their home or from small satellite offices to generate loan opportunities across the co-op ecosystem. And, you know, we do that by supporting grassroots-led organizations that really, you know, promote the creation of cooperatives and cooperative development. We work very closely with NCBA, National Cooperative Business Association, and support their efforts. We just completed a full-year Key 6 initiative, Key 6 referencing the sixth cooperative principle of cooperation among cooperatives. And so that effort was to really promote growth and really research why there are not, you know, a huge number of co-ops being created and really linking what needs to be done to create those new co-ops. And access to capital, as you well know, is one of the major stumbling blocks for any small business, but particularly small cooperatives and new young cooperatives. Uh, Well, that was the reason for the passage of the Cooperative Bank Act that the commercial banks didn't want to extend loans to co-ops. They thought it was an alien kind of economic ideology. It wasn't capitalistic. Again, from your materials, you say co-ops operate for the benefit of their member owners. They take advantage of economies of scale, combined buying power, and strength in numbers to save money and return profits to their members. In the process, co-ops provide millions of jobs, support businesses and personal needs, enhance the quality of life, end quote. I would add that they also have, for example, voted to ban the sale of cigarettes or other products that they don't like in the food store that they own. And they were in the vanguard of that, ahead of the supermarkets and commercial stores. So when we were lobbying the bill through, Casey, we had a wonderful young lobbyist lawyer, very savvy, Mitch Rofsky, unfortunately passed away recently and he would go up on capitol hill day after day and we would be involved in the drafting of the bill beating back some weakening amendments strengthening it making it more definitional about what a co-op is and i remember a meeting with senator proxmire who we had to get to support it he was head of the senate banking committee and he raised some doubts he said well how do you know there's going to be enough demand by enough co-ops to make it worthwhile. I said, well, you know, you have a lot of co-ops in Wisconsin and Eau Claire and other places, and, you know, the two work together. If there's a bank offering loans, it'll catch the attention of people, make it more likely they can sign up people to start a food co-op or a housing co-op. Well, obviously, it's been a difficult process, and I have a good example for you. In Winston, Connecticut, from which I hailed, they're trying to start a food co-op. And this was just before the COVID-19 pandemic. They signed up about 350 people. They gave between 250 and a, or up to $1,000. And then the COVID pandemic stalled the process. And I said to them, are you in touch with the National Cooperative Bank? They said, yes. He said, well, why don't you file a loan application? You've got the papers, you're a legal entity. And they said, well, we were told we really had to get up to a 1,000 members to show demonstration of support. 
the town is 11,000 people, and it, it serves smaller adjacent towns in Connecticut. What would you tell them to get them moving again? Well, we are always doing food co-ops across the country. We just did a, a big one in Detroit, which was this being constructed right now. We're working on some in Chicago and other parts of the country. You know, I think that getting that initial group of members, not only to provide capital, which is obviously important, but just to ensure the success of the co-op once the doors open is critical. And so there are playbooks, I, you know, the food co-ops being a pretty well-established group in the co-op space, there are playbooks that lay out, you know, the things to do to make a, a food co-op successful. And hitting those, you know, that thousand member target is, is clearly one, it has to differ by market. It has to be bespoke depending on the situation, but, but having that group of member owners that will support the store is critical. So I, I you know, I would say to that co-op, continue to talk to NCB, some of the other CDFIs that are focused on co-ops that have technical assistance. CDFI stands for Community Development Financial Institution. You know, there's plenty of them all around the country, and they do wonderful work. They're outside of the banking system directly, but they provide to communities who need financial services that aren't well served. CDFIs, you know, serve a very important role in this country. I think some of these you know, any small business, but co-ops where you don't have necessarily one driving leader, but several technical assistance is critical. And there are some groups like FCI out there that do a lot of great consulting with young in developing food co-ops. I will note, Ralph, that linking this discussion with the early lobbying efforts and the difficulty in communicating the need of cooperatives and the importance of cooperatives. We still do that today and we still deal with some difficulty like you did in 1978. You know, the Small Business Administration for decades did not allow cooperatives to be borrowers for an SBA loan. So NCB, along with many of the other cooperatives in the space, have lobbied long and hard to allow co-ops to be eligible borrowers under SBA programs. Listeners should know that the size and range of cooperatives in Europe, especially Western Europe, are far, far greater than in the U.S. And credit unions were brought to the U.S. by Canadians from Quebec. They went down to New Hampshire over 100 years ago and helped start the first credit union, which is basically an alternative to commercial banks. And we did a report for the Marshall Fund called Making Change, Learning from Europe's Consumer Cooperatives it came out in 1985 by the Center for Study of Responsive Law. We sent people to various countries, Norway, Sweden, Germany, France, Italy, England, to study their co-ops, to find out why are they so much larger and vigorous. In Switzerland, they have two giant food co-ops. One of them is called Migros, M-I-G-R-O-S. It has an adult education a big food co-op. It has a newspaper, one of the leading newspapers in Switzerland, and it brings a lot of benefits to its owners. Why do you think the tradition in Europe was so much more robust to this day? Yeah, I had the, the benefit of visiting Italy last year in the Emilia-Romagna region outside of Bologna and went there with a number of U.S. co-op leaders and that is the most concentrated area really in the in the world with of cooperatives. And there are some very large ones, particularly in the agricultural space, but there's a lot of small ones too, and a lot of social cooperatives. 
in social cooperatives that, that help those in need, disabled people, and they really serve the needs of the communities where these people live. And so what drives that? I think culturally, businesses in Italy, for example, tend not to be as large as American corporations. I think that there's not this strive and drive goal to be bigger and better and just get larger and larger. I think that there's a culture of smaller businesses, and I think that has allowed many small cooperatives to prosper. On the other hand, you've got the Spanish Mondragon system, which is a hybrid co-op that is the largest worker-owned co-op in the world. And Mondragon is also, you know, as opposed to the smaller Italian co-ops, is wildly successful in Spain. Is you know the Basque region of Spain has always you know outperformed you know the rest of the country in large part because of the strong cooperative system. And I think despite Mondragon being so large, they too have it broken down into many smaller entities. So, you know, they've been at it a little bit longer than us in the States. And I think that culturally they they were tuned in quite well. Ralph, maybe we'll catch up someday. Well, as you may know, back in 1989, our center issued a report by Sayum Haragat, critical of the bank in its first 10 years, called the failed promise of the National Cooperative Bank. And the nub of the criticism is the expanded definition of what is a co-op. And I'll just read a short paragraph from the report. In sum, the National Consumer Bank claims to be fulfilling the mandate of the Bank Act by providing services to business cooperatives, to federations of bank cooperatives, to credit union service corporations, to business members of cooperatives, and to others that might confer benefit on cooperatives and their members. Ralph Nader characterizes NCB's lending priorities as, quote, an unbelievable repudiation of NCB's original mission 10 years from birth in terms of the co-op ideal, end quote. In a way, the whole scheme makes a mockery of the cooperative ideal, says the author Sayum Harga, who is a Harvard Law graduate from many years ago, a very smart man. Give us a sense, this is a very intricate area. Before you even entered the bank in 1996, they were starting to give loans to cooperative networks between Dunkin' Donuts stores and that kind of thing. Probably because they didn't have enough loan demand, except for housing co-ops. Tell us about this whole eligibility. Why in the world would the co-op bank extend a multi-million dollar loan to NPR, National Public Radio? Tell us about the eligibility beyond co-ops owned by the ultimate consumer, like a traditional housing co-op or a traditional food co-op. Yeah, no, I look, I think that NCB has absolutely served its mission really for the 45 years it's been around. You know, we continue to serve consumer cooperatives across the country, and that's where we put most of our dollars, both, you know, deposit dollars and lending dollars. And as you noted earlier, it's really a dually mandated bank. One is to serve America's cooperatives, and the second is to serve low and moderate income communities. And we continue to hold, you know, 39% of our portfolio in low to moderate income communities, which is above the Bank Act's original best efforts goal. You know, the the Bank Act requires that members and shareholders of NCB cooperative be cooperatives. We are a second tier co-op, meaning that individuals cannot belong to NCB as a member, but rather cooperatives made up of individuals and, and corporations can become members of NCB. You know, I would argue that NCB has expanded the lending 
of you know beyond just consumer cooperatives to the benefit of all cooperatives including consumer cooperatives you know we have gained expertise in many markets that have helped us provide better products and lower cost financing to consumer cooperatives and other cooperatives you know across the ecosystem we fund worker cooperatives we do work with purchasing co-ops you mentioned dunkin donuts i personally have walked a, a dunkin donuts cooperative kitchen and uh, i'll tell you the smell alone of that facility would convince you that it's a loan worth making and that's an example of small business owners you know chipping in to have a cooperative kitchen to make donuts serving say 100 different dunkin donut sites and i think you know if if you're really looking at solving poverty and helping the community i think you have to look at ownership and small business ownership is a critical element in building wealth and narrowing the wealth gap let me ask you to tell our listeners the percentage of loans in various categories. How much did you loan out, for example, last year, and what percent went to housing co-ops, what percent went to business-type co-ops, to consumer co-ops? Sure. Housing co-ops, you know, which are consumer cooperatives, is regularly and annually the biggest category of our lending. So I don't have those numbers at my fingertips, but I, I think if of our $1.6 billion of loan production last year, I would say that about a billion dollars of that was in consumer housing cooperatives. Outside of that, we do do food cooperatives. As you mentioned, we've lent to food cooperatives and independent business owners that are members of cooperatives. And that has, I bet you that's, a, that's a probably $100 million or more in and of itself. You know, we have many lines of business that serve different co-ops in the, you know, across the country and in different industries. Consumer cooperatives, I can say with absolute certainty, are consistently the highest percent of our origination and have been really as long as I've been at the bank, which will be, I think, 27 years next week. So my personal opinion is that there's the small tent view of cooperatives and the large tent view of cooperatives. And I think that by focusing on the the, the big tent, I think there's more people under the big tent. And I think, you know, P6, you know, cooperating with cooperatives allow for a better NCB. I think NCB is better. And I think our consumer cooperatives are better off that we are we are tied into the cooperative ecosystem in a more fulsome way. It also makes you more politically formidable in Congress when you have small business lobby not being antagonistic to you up against larger companies that have always tried to undermine the cooperative institutions from time to time, sometimes a pitched battle in Congress. Let me ask you this before we go to Steve, David, and Henna. The consumer cooperative borrowers have a pretty good record of repayment. You don't have a very bad loan record, do you? We do not. No, we've been successful, as have our customers. Listeners should know that the bank doesn't just loan money. As technical assistance, it can go out and really help you answer your questions if you want to form a new co-op. So let me give you a hypothetical. Let's say teachers want to start a school at the community college level, and they want to attract students to be trained in three majors. One, how to work at the municipal level, staff, cities and towns, villages, how to work in the voluntary charitable world, foundations, and how to work in civic groups, all of which require skills. And it's a good idea to give them a running start rather than trying to recruit them as not having any background in their formal education. 
So let's say a group of teachers wanted to get underway, and they want to do it in a cooperative manner. They have the premises, and they know they can get students for these job openings that are yawning for these job openings that would like students to come with some background, some field experience in their majors at community college. Is that a possible co-op? Yeah, I think any company can be structured as a co-op. And, and if in that hypothetical, that's a there's, I think, a lot of demand for that hypothetical co-op. There's, I think, most business schools focus on the corporate structure and they don't focus as much as on the co-op and municipal and foundation areas. So I think if those teachers were to combine and, and, and put together a business plan and, and a capital plan, I think that's exactly where to start is to really define how this business would operate and how it would fund I think there are groups that can provide startup capital in that intermediate capital and also long-term capital. There is a rich ecosystem of, of lenders in the space that we all work together to, to try to start those new co-ops. You know, I started to touch on earlier, the SBA allows now through many years of lobbying co-ops to be eligible SBA borrowers, but there's still work to be done on eliminating the need of a personal guarantee for cooperatives. And we are lobbying and pushing hard and have been for a while to make that change because so many small businesses in this country get their first start through a small business administration loan. That's a very common way for a small business owner to start their company. And co-ops, despite changes allowing them to borrow, structurally have a difficult time doing it because it requires a personal guarantee. And as you know, co-ops could have several or even hundreds or thousands of members and no one individually is going to sign personally. So that's an area that we continue to lobby for. That's good. And tell our listeners how they can reach you, the website for the bank and for the technical assistance, low-income part of the bank. Sure. So National Cooperative Bank's website is ncb.coop.coop. And the Office of Self-Help development and technical assistance that you're referring to is known as Capital Impact Partners. They are capitalimpact.org. Capital Impact Partners does a wonderful job in, and actually they just raised a significant amount of money to fund the Equitable Prosperity Fund, which also provides preferred equity for startup cooperatives in addition to you know technical assistance and technical assistance partners. Mm-hmm. I like your interest in co-ops on university and college campuses, food co-ops, housing co-ops, book co-ops. You've made some loans in that direction. I applaud you for that. Now, do you consider yourself a tribune for the cooperative philosophy, like some of the the forebears in the history of cooperatives in America? I mean, do you go around making speeches, educating people about the cooperative philosophy, cooperative practices? And if so, how can they get a hold of those speeches? Sure. I, you know, I've done a lot of these types of podcasts and I'll make speeches where, wherever I can. I, I consider myself a learner and an educator. I love to learn from those around me and I feel like I've been blessed to have uh, great cooperators in my circle. And I hope to provide that same teaching to, to others in my circle. I think that co-ops play a critical role in the United States. I think, as you mentioned, one out of every three, you know, consumers are members of a co-op and In addition to that, you can't walk into a grocery store or a hardware store and really not touch something that has passed through a cooperative. So I think that it is a critical component 
of the ecosystem in this country. And I think that it, it helps the little guy, you know, in using sticking with the hardware example, you know, you go into the big box stores and it's not so personal. If you walk into a small hardware store that is a member of a cooperative, you know, it's part of the community, it's building wealth in the local level, and it serves the customers. And it, it, it's more of a, a niche delivery system for the consumers. So, you know, well, I can't that, imagine. That's one that. of the additional advantages of cooperatives in our country. You must not be entirely satisfied with the rate of growth of the bank. What ideas do you have to really expand the bank's capitalization and loan portfolio? Yeah, well, we we grew our loan portfolio 18% last year. We're in the midst of a strategic plan that sees growth as a critical element. It's really the foundation of the three-year strategic plan. So I can't say I'm unsatisfied with the growth of the bank. I think that we have successfully used the capital markets to securitize and you know, many of our loans. So I think that we've, we're, we're a pretty complex and clever bank. So we don't necessarily have to see the portfolio growth to measure our success. I think we consider our success lending, and but also providing value to our customers. And so we can provide value to customers and bring in other loan participants or securitization strategies that deliver the best value to our customer while not necessarily growing NCB's balance sheet. So I do think growth is very important, but I don't think it is the only measurement to measure our success. So our growth capital, we've stayed true to our cooperative roots. We have not raised outside capital to fund growth. And our, our growth capital comes from retained earnings. So we, we walk that balance of delivering our 3,600 shareholders a nice annual return through patronage dividends while retaining some portion of our earnings to fuel growth and just to provide a safe and sound bank to make sure we have a strong capital position. And I think we've done an excellent job over, over many decades in achieving both. We have often called David Thompson, Mr. Cooperative USA. And one of the things he likes about cooperatives is they meet with people in real time. And do you and your colleagues go out to invitations to speak and advise to areas that are thinking about going cooperative in one area after another? No, absolutely. Up and coming conference is a popular one for consumer cooperatives and food cooperatives across the country. And we're present every single year. Impact conference, which is a big co-op event across industries and across cooperative types, we are a big sponsor of and, you know, are, can be seen very much on panels in both of those, but many others. You know, we like I said, we're, we're in all 50 states. We're across the whole co-op ecosystem. And so we, we spread ourselves across the country and see ourselves as technical experts. And I just presented to a number of independently owned grocery store operators who are members of cooperatives and walked through the ABCs of, of financing to those small business owners. So yes, we are trying to put ourselves in the way of co-op creation. So we are a part of the discussion and can help these co-ops. And I think we've done a good job of doing so. Well, the farmers pioneered that area. They got Congress to establish banks for cooperatives. These are pretty giant financial institutions. And I remember during the oil embargo in the mid-'70s, I came across an oil company that was owned by the farmers. They actually had wells. They had gas stations. They had pipelines. And they accounted for about 1% of the oil industry as a co-op. Does that still exist? 
Well, I think the the largest co-op on the Co-op 100 is CHS, and I do know that they have a fuel component of their business. It's much more vast than just fuel. But, you know, it's that purchasing power that a co-op can attain by having so many members and can drive down the cost of those commodity prices. You mentioned earlier, right, co-ops typically aren't on the cutting edge of you know, risk-taking. It's really, co-ops are generally formed when there's a need by a group of individuals. Like, in the, you know, sticking with the food co-op, if you're in a community that's a food desert, you know, you're looking around with your neighbors saying, hey, there's a problem here, we need to solve this. Or if there's a home health care cooperative, it's because there's a need in the community to serve, you know, elders that are in, you know, the need of help. So I think that, you know, co-ops generally are focusing on the core facets of, of living, health care, finance, food, power. These are all things that are, you know, and it's, it's no surprise that, you know, rural electric, credit union, and ag are the three largest categories in the co-op space. Well, also your bank is moving it to solar energy co-ops, right? Yeah, we've done some community solar projects, which I'm really excited about. You know, I think it serves a couple different needs. One is, you know, climate change, but also all of the community solar projects we've done have resulted in a guaranteed savings for the consumer. So there are usually state and federal subsidies within these deals that allow for consumers to have lower cost of energy. And so they get particular credit if they're in low income areas. And I think that's so important because, you know, if if you save 20 bucks a month, you know, an affluent family might enjoy that 20 bucks a month, but it may not be as impactful as a $20 savings a month for a low income community or a low income family. So we've done several of these community solar deals and I'd like to do a lot more. I think that they're achieving our low income goals, but also, you know, the principle seven concern for community, the seventh co-op principle, we feel that our solar business is aligned perfectly with that. We've been speaking with Casey Fannon, F-A-N-N-O-N. He's the CEO of the National Cooperative Bank. The board of directors are largely from cooperative or nonprofit origins. They're not commercial bank executives. And we hope that this program will interest the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, AP, in paying more attention to what you're all doing and the cooperative movement in America. Before we go to Steve, could you give the website again, slowly, for our listeners? So, Ralph, the two websites I direct listeners to is ncb.coop and capitalimpact.org. Okay. Steve? Casey, from your point of view, is the co-op movement declining? Is it holding steady? Is it growing? Where Where is the co-op movement generally in the United States? Yeah, I think there's a lot of energy with young people in particular right now in forming cooperatives. I think that they're disenchanted with Silicon Valley and you know venture funds and things like that. And there's been a, a growing interest in using the co-op form to start new businesses. There's a business here in New York City called the Drivers Co-op, which is sort of a competitor. It's called a platform co-op, so it's really utilizing some of the, the technology that you'd expect from Uber and Lyft, but it's owned by the drivers. That's, a, that's an example. Right now, I am spending some personal time coming up to speed on the community land trust structure, which are community, community groups, trusts that own land to preserve affordable housing and oftentimes build limited equity housing cooperatives on the space, on the land that they own. We see a lot of co-op development in two categories of housing. One is senior housing, 
So a lot of senior housing cooperatives are being formed. It's a way for seniors to sell their single family detached home, move into a, a co-op that they own, they govern, and they design specifically to their needs. And it, it's really a, a wonderful social enterprise, really, when you, when you visit these properties. And then another area in the housing space is manufactured housing. We've done a lot of conversions of privately held rental manufactured home communities, converting them to housing cooperatives. And you think about that community, that's usually the lowest income community group in, in an area. And you know they have been exploited by many property owners by raising rents, because once you move your home there, it's, you know, the term mobile home is is very much a misnomer. They're not very mobile. And so once the home is on site, owners have historically taken advantage of those renters. So we've converted many of those to to cooperative ownership. And it really delivers the the land back to the the owners of the homes. And once again, they govern and control the economics of the co-op. So I see really opportunities across across the co-op space. And I think NCB and many of our financing partners need to lean in as we get bigger and some of our partners get bigger. We need to make sure that we we are focused on the small cooperative development. In 2021, following a very good year, we delivered on a goal that my predecessor, Chuck Snyder, had really dreamt up. And that was the creation of what we now call Rochdale Capital. We have since contributed $6.5 million of equity to Rochdale Capital, and we have $3 million more that we're intending to donate for a total of $9.5 million. In Rochdale Capital, led by John Holtzclaw, is an aspiring community development financial institution. And in addition to all the work NCB is doing, Rochdale will continue to, to serve our collective goal of working with small cooperatives and importantly, outside of the regulated banking system, so they can be a little bit more friendly, they can be a little bit more bespoke in risk takers fueled by NCB's capital with a particular focus on BIPOC communities. So, you know, we're, we're trying to seed the ecosystem and the financing space of the cooperative market with Rochdale, NCB and others to ensure that these young entrepreneurs can finance themselves. David? Let me ask you about the tension between purity tests and compromise. This is a capitalist country and compromise is essential. It's easy to stay pure if you never do anything. So you mentioned working with Dunkin' Donuts and, you know, until recently, Dunkin' Donuts was co-owned by Mitt Romney's Bain Capital and David Rubenstein's Carlyle Group. Bain is one of America's leading predatory venture capitalists. They buy perfectly fine companies and destroy them by saddling them with the debt that they incurred buying the company. Carlyle Group, perhaps one of the biggest weapons investors in the world. So all of us are trying to do good in this world by spending our money wisely. At what point do the purity tests end and when do we have to compromise? Well, I think working with small business owners, you know, store owners that own one store or five stores or maybe 10 stores, to me, that feels that feels like the right thing to do. We are creating wealth at the individual level, at the family level, by working with these small business owners. You know, would I prefer to have all of my, my loans to, to perfectly structured cooperatives? Yeah, sure. Is that practical? 
Not always. I think so. Compromise has to be factored in. You know, I mentioned earlier, big tent, small tent. I definitely like to view the world as big tent. I think that the more people you can put under the tent. Now, there are certain businesses we will not touch. I mean, clearly, I mean, we have there are certain lines in the sand, but I think what are they? Well, you know, we stay out of gambling. We stay out of, you know, vices, things like that. As I as I mentioned, most cooperatives are squarely in the space of day-to-day needs. And and we turn down deals with a lot of, you know, different co-ops with the legalization of marijuana coming. We've said no to a lot of those. You know, we, we, we've tried to stay true to uh, making the world a better place. Anna? I'd like to shift away from the larger scale to the more personal finance aspect of what you guys do. I was surprised to find so many resources for financial education on your website. I guess it fits with the mission now that I think about it, but could you tell the audience about the financial education resources on your website? I'm very impressed and it's probably going to teach me more than I learned in my high school econ class about personal finance. Sure. And we we do it on a couple different levels. Um, I mentioned we have an Ohio organization. We have about 125 people in Ohio and we support financial literacy in the county that we employ about 150 people in thereabouts. And we go to the local high schools and provide sort of a competitive environment for local high schools to compete to see how many students can take these financial literacy classes. And we create a, you know, an environment where you know, winners get a check to buy new computer equipment for the students and even the, the runner-ups do. In addition to that, we have a lot of how-tos, you know, how to start a co-op, how to how to start a food co-op, how to work with a housing co-op. And we partner with different groups too. FCI does a great job on the food co-op space. National Association of Housing Cooperatives does a great job on the housing cooperative space. The CUNA Foundation does a fantastic job with financial literacy and the consumer side. We work very closely with these credit unions. We also, I haven't mentioned yet, we, we work with certified low-income designated credit unions. We provide sub-debt to those credit unions to fuel their growth. And so many of those low-income credit unions, you know, financial literacy is really the center of everything they do in their community. You mentioned education. I would say that, you know, another way to say education is technical assistance. And I think technical assistance is critical to any co-op development project. I don't care what space you're in. And, you know, co-ops are unique and, you know, not everybody has the experience of self-governing and starting a new business. And so I think technical assistance is critical and it's hard work. It's not easy work. It takes time. It takes a lot of effort. But, you know, so many of us try to get it done. For sure. Listeners might be interested to know that the co-op bank in Washington, D.C., often gets rated as one of the best places to work in Washington, D.C. Before we close, any comments you want to make that we didn't cover? I will say that NCB and its partner, Capital Impact Partners, have really led an initiative called the Cooperative Innovation Awards. And this last couple of years, Rochdale Capital, National Co-op Grocers, CUNA Mutual, and local federal credit union have also contributed. It's a program that we solicit request for grants from young and small cooperatives across the country, typically urban urban areas. And we give out awards. We've given out $900,000 of grants to these small co-ops. And, you know, they can be grants of $35,000, $50,000. And it's really that seed capital, that $900,000 has really developed into $10 million of debt financing on top of it. So it's really 
you know, that early capital is so important in these small, small businesses and these small co-ops. And once you've got organizations like NCB and, and our partners contributing into these, to these small organizations, it gives them a little bit more clout, a little bit more validity and a little bit more capital. And they're able to really grow that into a, a larger financing. So we, that, that's something that we continue to grow each year. We, we're very happy. We're in the midst of looking at applications now, and we've got so many wonderful groups that are applying and doing great work. Well, we're out of time. We've been speaking with Casey Fannin, the CEO of the National Consumer Bank in Washington, D.C., with a couple offices in New York and elsewhere. Can you give slowly the website listeners huge number of opportunities for you here the website once more before we close. Yeah, I'd like to direct the listeners to NCB's website. It is ncb.coop, ncb.coop. There you have it, listeners. Go for it. Thank you very much, Casey. To be Thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure. And once again, thanks for all the work you put forward in the 70s to put NCB on the map. We're still trying to make you proud. Oh, yes. Well, it's one of our proudest moments. So we wish you the best of luck in quality expansion as well as quantity. Thank you. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Casey Fannin. We will link to the National Cooperative Bank at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, Ralph has a couple of things to get off his chest, and he's going to respond to some of your listener feedback. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokiver. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, August 11, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. Hours after Democrats in the Senate last week blocked an effort to install greater oversight over the billions of dollars the United States is spending in Ukraine, the watchdog who oversaw U.S. spending in Afghanistan issued a warning. That's according to a report in The Intercept. Spending too much too fast with little oversight would lead to unanticipated consequences, said John Sopko, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, or SIGAR. The U.S. has sent more money to Ukraine in one year than it spent in Afghanistan over 12 years, Sopko pointed out. I'm not opposed to spending that. I just want to make sure it's done correctly and that there's oversight, he said. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Native Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman, Hannah, Ralph, and the rest of the team. Ralph, you've got some things you wanted to talk about. One aspect of the cooperative movement that has great potentials in the healthcare industry. There can be healthcare co-ops treating healthcare workers much better, owned by the healthcare workers. Daycare co-ops much better than the commercial daycare chains around the country. So that's another area for listeners to contact the National Consumer Bank about. We have perverse incentives in the way the corporations have structured our economy. People who produce the necessities of life are often paid the least, and people who produce the speculation and the avaricious activities of our economy are paid the most. For example, the people who grow and harvest our crops are often paid the least, respected the least, work in most hazardous workplaces in the rural farm areas. Same is true for healthcare workers whose average pay now is about $13 an hour. 
giving life-sustaining help to elderly people, for instance. On the other hand, we have people who make entertainment products and services hugely paid, not to mention Tim Cook, who last year made $833 a minute a minute on a 40-hour week. So the co-op movement is a movement of equitable respect for workers and consumers and deserves far more media attention, which we hope to foster. Okay, that's one. The other is, I have to point out, a few days ago in the New York Times Sunday edition, it happened again. The reporter said, in the U.S., a sitting president cannot be prosecuted. That's completely false. And Bruce Fine, our constitutional law expert, has explained that in a email to the reporter. And I just want to briefly read that. He said, quote, in the United States, sitting presidents are immune from prosecution, end quote. Bruce responds, quote, that has been the non-legally binding opinion of a Department of Justice speaking through the Office of Legal Counsel since 1975. The Office of Legal Counsel opinion was issued outside any adversary process, and no court decision has ever affirmed it. The predicate of the appointment of Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox by Attorney General Elliot Richardson during the Watergate scandal was exactly to investigate and prosecute crimes committed by sitting President Richard M. Nixon. So this was not reflecting this kind of presidential immunity, Bruce goes on to say. He said, sitting members of the U.S. Supreme Court and sitting members of Congress can be criminally prosecuted. Nothing in the Constitution's text suggests sitting presidents should be treated differently. To do so would contradict the hallowed hallmark of the American Revolution, elaborated by Thomas Paine. In America, the rule of law is king. The king is not law, end quote, says Bruce Fine, constitutional law expert. Now, this reporter is not the only one that has said this. This has been appearing again and again in the last four or five years in major newspapers and on radio and TV. A sitting president can be prosecuted criminally in the USA, period. Thank you, Ralph. Now, let's respond to some listener feedback. This first one comes from Roxana Maranak, who's responding to our program last week on digital addictions. And she says, thank you again, Ralph, for another informative program. I think we are at this juncture because of the underfunding of public education with diverse programs that help create curiosity in young people rather than the push to simply fit in. I enjoy my time alone. I'm never bored as I'm always curious to know more things. Also, as our planet continues to shrink, Understand we are all connected on this small planet. The driving need of capitalism for more profit is undercutting and destroying our democracy. My faith is in young people. That's Roxana Marinak off of YouTube. Well, certainly we agree with you because we have no alternative to young people. We've got to wean them more time off that iPhone and Internet addiction that the companies like Facebook and Google are so skilled in intensifying at a very young age, I might add. And we hope this program will be listened to by more young people. And we hope that more of our listeners will try to get more radio stations to carry this program. And of course, you can always get a free transcript of the program to use in classes or civic circles 
in your living room or in your neighborhood. So do spread the word, listeners. Thank you. And thank you, Roxanne. This comes to us from TJJ. Talk about techno-capitalist regime. Let us not forget all the dead or dying people of color extracting cobalt for our AI devices. Most of the cobalt is now produced in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in West Africa. And the workers are not exactly protected. Some young workers are actually digging out in the ground with shovels in their bare hands. There is some protection under the government's law, but it doesn't go far enough. And of course, there is the lithium miners and miners of other rare metals that go into the production of electric car vehicles that have similar lack of protections in developing countries, much less developed countries. The New York Times just had a a big article on the cobalt workers in the Congo, if you want to follow up on that. I want to thank our guests again, Casey Fannin from the National Cooperative Bank. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, featuring Francesco DeSantis. And in case you haven't heard, the producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreaders, Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producers, Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager, Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. Get active. That's what it's all about. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to the wrap-up, where Ralph has one more question for Casey Fannin of the National Cooperative Bank. Well, I'm not very satisfied with the level of mainstream media covering the bank activities and the cooperative movement. Am I missing something? I mean, I look at the newspapers and magazines, NPR, just don't hardly ever hear about your efforts and what's going on around the country. Yeah, you know, co-ops are often referred to as uh, America's best kept secret. I think the co-op space collectively could do a better job tooting our own horn, celebrating our successes. One thing that we have done for 30 years, Ralph, is created the Co-op 100. And that is a research piece that we put out every year. And listeners can Google the Co-op 100. It lists the largest 100 cooperatives in the United States. And that is a, a publication that gets a lot of press and a lot of clicks, a lot of views. And that's something we've been doing for 30, 30 plus years. And I think that is an example of how we can connect consumers and, and, and other people, business owners, to realize how vast the co-op system is. It's really across industry. It's across you know, the country. You know, a lot of you know, rural electric cooperatives are in there, a lot of agricultural cooperatives. Many of them are not NCB's customers, but I think NCB provides that, that research you know, for everyone in the space. Time now for In Case You Haven't Heard with Francesco DeSantis. The progressive Wisconsin-based legal group Law Forward has filed a brief with the Wisconsin Supreme Court alleging that the state's legislative maps violate the state constitution due to rampant partisan gerrymandering. Not only are the petitioners demanding new legislative maps, they are also calling on the court to cut all existing Senate terms short, In practice, this would mean the entire legislature would be up for election in 2024. 
this could mean a political sea change in the Badger State. The LA Times reports that AOC, along with 10 other progressive members of Congress, are planning to visit Latin American nations led by leftist governments in order to, quote, learn from our counterparts in these countries, including how to confront disinformation and violent threats to our democracies, end quote. She went on to add, quote, it's long past time for a realignment of the United States relationship to Latin America. The U.S. needs to publicly acknowledge the harms we've committed through interventionist and extractive policies and chart a new course based on trust and mutual respect. In a win for workers, the Department of Labor has issued a rule on the Davis-Beacon Act, which, quote, sets a wage floor for construction workers on public works projects, end quote, per the American prospect. This law is also known as the quote-unquote prevailing wage law as it sets benchmarks for wages in a given area. This rule could have major positive ramifications for workers as President Biden's infrastructure package and the CHIPS Act are put into action. This New Deal-era labor rule was significantly weakened under the Carter and Reagan administrations, and labor groups have been pushing for its restoration ever since. The article notes, however, that, quote, the rule is expected to be immediately challenged, end quote, with the Associated Builders and Contractors Trade Group poised to file a lawsuit as early as next week. In more labor news, the Washington Post reports that 11,000 Los Angeles city employees joined the writers, actors, and hotel employees in a one-day strike to, quote, shut down the city of Los Angeles, end quote, according to David Green, executive director and president of SEIU Local 721. Green added, quote, the message we're sending is that our workers are just fed up. They've reached a breaking point, and we need these folks in the city to come back to the table for the good of the city. Vice reports that a group of 32 economists have sent a letter to the Federal Housing Finance Agency in support of rent control. This is the latest tactic in a campaign led by People's Action. The article notes that, quote, economists have historically been the strongest critics of rent control, end quote, but like on the issue of minimum wage, quote, some economists believe the orthodoxy on the topic has been contradicted by research and real-world examples. The climate-focused news site Heat Map reports that the Department of Energy is launching a new procurement program focused on technology to, quote, remove carbon dioxide directly from the atmosphere, end quote. Notably, while agencies have, quote, previously granted money to carbon removal companies, funded R&D, or subsidized their activities, it has never pledged to buy their services directly, end quote. Utilizing the government's purchasing power to affect change in society more broadly has been done before, perhaps most famously with automobile airbags following the advocacy of Ralph Nader. A new report on 90-year-old Senator Dianne Feinstein in the New York Times covers the legal battle between her daughter and her stepdaughters over her late husband's estate. Buried in this report is a startling fact. Senator Feinstein's daughter holds power of attorney over her mother's legal affairs. It is disturbing to think that a person incapable of managing their own legal affairs is one of only two senators representing 40 million people in the upper house of Congress. DCist reports that the Washington, D.C. Democratic Party is suing to prevent ranked choice voting and open primaries from appearing as ballot measures in next year's elections. D.C. Democratic Party officials have claimed these reforms would disenfranchise voters, with one opponent even calling ranked choice voting, quote, electoral gentrification, end quote. Implicit in these criticisms is the fact that the overwhelming power of D.C.'s Democratic Party may be challenged somewhat by these reforms, opening electoral space for independents or other parties. 
The tech website Stack Diary reports that the ubiquitous teleconferencing app Zoom has quietly added sinister new sections to their terms of service. Put simply, sections 10.2 and 10.4 explicitly allow for the company to collect user data and, quote, use this data for machine learning and artificial intelligence, including training and tuning of algorithms and models, effectively allowing Zoom to train its AI on customer content without providing an opt-out option. Finally, the American Prospect reports that a bipartisan group of senators, led by Senators Dick Durbin of Illinois and Roger Marshall of Kansas, are championing the Credit Card Competition Act, which aims to crack down on credit card swipe fees by, quote, forcing card issuers like Visa and MasterCard to enable competitor networks to manage the processing and routing the services for which swipe fees are levied, end quote. Panicked by these developments, quote, shadowy right-wing groups have been issuing mailers and other advertisements claiming the bill is a liberal handout for woke big box retailers like Target. One set of mailers was bankrolled by the Conservative Accountability Foundation, a newly formed organization based in Senator Marshall's home state of Kansas, but without a listed address or phone number, end quote. In other words, Corporations and their political front groups are pushing the culture war button to avoid consumer protection regulation. What else is new? This has been In Case You Haven't Heard. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Until next time. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long.